Amen? How are you doing this morning? I'm not quite sure. Have you guys recovered? Have you recovered from Christmas and the snowstorm last week? Okay, we're here. We're doing good. So, all right. So look at somebody next to you and say, I'm glad that you're here. And then whatever else you want to tell them. And if you're not glad they're here, don't, don't lie. So go ahead and repent if you're not glad that that... No, I'm just kidding. That wouldn't, that wouldn't be good. Start off on the wrong foot. Somebody made some good coffee, I heard. I heard something about that. Okay, awesome. On March 30th, 1863, President Abraham Lincoln declared a national day of prayer, of fasting and humility. The war was taking its toll, the Civil War, on both sides, and President Lincoln believed that if America as a whole turned their attention to God for just one day, it would help to bring an end to the conflict. Quote from President Lincoln, The awful calamity of civil war may be but a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins to the needful end of our national reformation as a whole people. We have forgotten God. We have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom in virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too proud to pray to the God that made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power to confess our national sins. And he goes on and says, Let us then rest humbly in the hope authorized by the divine teachings that the united cry of the nation will be heard on high and answered with blessing no less than the pardon of our national sins and the restoration of our now divided and suffering country to its former happy condition of unity and peace. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? And if we were to to overlay that proclamation or that request by a president, he could speak those words today. And we could, in the same sense of response, say, God, we need you to forgive us and to heal our land. We started a series last week uh, called Revive. You've seen it on the screen. And the, the text, the overlying text for our series the next few weeks is Second Chronicles 7.14, uh, where the chronicler um, says, where, where it says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, forgive, and restore their land. If my people will humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sins, and restore their land. We are pursuing God at the beginning of this year and saying, God, you are an awesome God. You're a wonderful God, but you are a God that takes sin seriously. You take sin seriously, first of all, in the church's life. Just want you to know that God is extremely interested in how we respond or don't respond to His Word, how we address idolatry and sin in our own life. 
but he's also concerned about the sins of the land, and the, 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 the place that we live. And he is not only serious about sin, but the reason he's serious about sin is because he wants to redeem his people from sin. He wants to bring mercy and grace. He wants to extend forgiveness, and he wants to heal the land. And so we are, going, we are in a season to say, God, we don't want to cast aside uh, our, our understanding or our recognition of sin in our life. We're not just going to pretend like sin's not there and, and pretend like God's okay with it. But we're also not going to stay in the place of, of, of woeful pity or, or begging God to do something, but we are going to get before the living God and recognize that He's already done something for us if we will humble ourselves and call out to Him. He's already provided a way for us to be set free so that we might sing the praises of God with confidence and be in His presence unashamed because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. We'll take a look these next few weeks at that passage of Scripture as it is kind of a theme, uh, a theme for the, the, the whole book of, of Chronicles. And Second Chronicles specifically is where we're going to be looking at. And we're going to be looking at four kings. Four kings that the chronicler says were good kings for the most part. You'll see in their lives that they were good most of the time. It's true about all of us, isn't it? You know, how many of you want to, we said this last week, could it be said that you are a bad or good person? Yes. <laughs> At least for me. And we'll read about that in the lives of these good kings. And the reason that they were described as good kings, I believe, is because they embodied at some point in their leadership in their life for themselves and the nation, what this verse I just quoted speaks of, that they humbled themselves before God, sought His face, cried out to God, turned from wickedness, and believed that God would be the restorer of their land. So I start off with Abraham Lincoln and this prayer called to humility, and uh, that is, I think, bef- uh, a grand uh, illustration or picture of what God would want us as a people to do, but what about going right down to our own lives? Another illustration right in the life of the Richmond family about humility and being confronted with the error of our sin. As parents, you know that sometimes you find your kids not doing right things. And it's always an interesting, I won't, I won't, I won't out which kid I'm talking about because it possibly could be any of our kids, but I specifically remember one child in my house that when they were caught in sin, this was their posture at first. We would bring them in. We'd say, so-and-so, do you realize, you know, did you do this? And it was almost as if their physical posture was one of resisting strong winds. (laughs) It's it's like they readied themselves. And they looked at us, but what was most... um, Humorous and serious all at the same time. Parents, you know what I'm talking about, where you're trying not to laugh and you're trying to look very stern. They would look at us and their eyes would shake. <laughs> like, did you do that? No. <laughs> and we knew by the eyes, we knew by the eyes that there was something not quite truthful in their statement. But they had convinced themselves, and they turns into we, I imagine, if we recognize our own sinful nature, they had decided that it was better to resist the storm than give in. I'm going to try to bluff my way out of this. 
I'm, I'm going to try to get out. And they started by rationalize, rationalizing that their sin wasn't as bad as what mom and dad had said. <laughs> Getting close to home yet for anybody? I wasn't that bad. Surely I didn't do that. As, by the, as a matter of fact, by the time they got to us, sometimes they didn't even think that they had done it, even though they'd gotten caught red-handed. They started to rationalize it, and the, the, but, but more than rationali- rationalizing, you know what they were thinking about. They didn't want to get disciplined. <laughs> so whatever they could do to not get disciplined, they were going to fight for that result. Little did do my kids, and did my kids, depending on the story, I think it, it, it comes later in life where you realize that mom and dad actually don't want to discipline you. Actually, what we desire most is that our kids understand that they've done something wrong and that they would quickly get to a place of repentance so that we could forgive them and so that we could lead them to a place of righteous living, a place where they could be free from that pattern of sin, whatever it is, and be free from the condemnation that they've been carrying around. How many of you know that one of the hardest things in life was when my mom would say, I'm not going to punish you, I'm going to wait until dad gets home. Well, that was like eternity. Do something now so that I don't suffer from the weight of my sin and shame and the thought about what could possibly happen when dad gets home. Was he going to be in a good mood or a bad mood? That was always a critical condition. But as, as parents, we realize, I mean, we know that something that our kids don't fully know is that what's the greatest desire in our heart is freedom for our children. Freedom from the sin, freedom from the shame, freedom from the fear of punishment, This is our desire. And this is born in us because it's the heart of God. Today we want to start looking at one of those kings. And we want to look at this first phrase in this verse 7, chapter 7, verse 14, verse that I quoted. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. We're going to look at these kings and this king today, and we're going to see that all, all four of those conditions this king possesses, but um, the text brings out this posture of humility with this king. And we're going to actually start, we're going to start from the end, the last king of Judah before the, Bab- the last good king before the Babylonian exile. We're going to look at King Josiah in, in chapter 34. So you can go to chapter 34 and me there, but I'm going to talk about humility here for a second. What does it mean to humble ourselves? In the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, there's two different ways in which humility or humbling ourselves is seen. It occurs 36 times, and half the time, around half the time, it talks about being subdued. This would be the secular sense. It talks about being subdued by our enemies. We are humbled by our enemy. The other half more of a sacred um, uh, perspective is bringing oneself low before God. Bringing oneself low or in a place of, of worship or reverence or acknowledgement before God who is high and great. 
humility, turning to the Lord and acknowledging that we are wrong and God is right in His judgments and actions. We are wrong and God is right in His judgments and actions. We know from Scripture and we know in our life that there's two ways to come to humility or to come to a place of being humbled before the Lord. We can either humble ourselves or He can humble us. But either way, God is working at our hearts to get us to a place where we experience humility. Because God knows that when He gets us out of the way, He can do something great in us. But when we find ourselves on par with God, and far be it for probably anybody in this room to say that you are superior to God, you would never say that, and yet we live our lives in a way that says, God, I think I can take care of this. I know better than you do. So God is always about finding ways to bring us to a place of humility because in that place of humility is the beginning of worship, beginning of acknowledgement of who God is so that God can have His place in our lives that He deserves. The final good king of Judah, Josiah, demonstrated this fruit of humbling himself and as a result leading his nation to humble themselves before God. Josiah became king when he was eight years old. Wow. Did anybody see some eight-year-olds walk out the door today and go, that's my king. What an unbelievable uh, responsibility that an eight-year-old would have to be king of a nation. Obviously, he probably had advisors and people around him that would help him think but at the end of the day, when you read the story of, the king, of King Josiah, it speaks of what Josiah did and how he dictated um, the, the events, how he led the events of his kingdom at an early age. But Josiah was eight years old and he ruled for 31 years. And as you read his story in Kings and Chronicles, you can see that he was a really good king in what he did, but he also was flawed just like you and me. But he led out in three different places of posture that we'll look at in these scriptures very quickly here in, in 2 Chronicles 34. He humbled himself before God. He humbled himself before God's Word. And he humbled himself before God's people. He was a man of humility. Josiah was eight years old, verse 1 when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. He did, verse 2, what was pleasing in the Lord's sight and followed the example of his ancestor David. He did not turn away from doing what was right. And during the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, Josiah began to seek the God of his ancestor David. Then in the twelfth year, he began to purify Judah in Jerusalem, destroying all the pagan shrines, the Asherah poles, and the carved idols and cast images. I just want to pause here for a second just to give modern commentary on this because it's pretty amazing. An eight-year-old boy becomes king, and as king, he has power. He has privilege. 
He has the world at his fingertips, and if he wanted to, he could have lived fully for himself, but there was something in Josiah that stirred him to live differently. You see, he didn't have, he didn't have any examples. His grandfather, Manasseh, was a terrible king. His father was evil. He didn't have any, in the, at least from our reading, there, was, there is no acknowledgement that Josiah had any, any head start in knowing who God was. As a matter of fact, he had everything before him that would have encouraged him to just continue to live, live the ways of his grandfather and father and commit evil acts, destructive acts before God and people. But something was in this eight-year-old boy that said, I want to live different. And at age 16, he starts seeking the Lord. Okay, teenagers in the room and middle schoolers, this message is for you. God, I believe, God saw something in Josiah's heart that was for the people of his nation. And he said, I don't care what age the person is, if they have a heart for God, I want to use them. And as a matter of fact, at the age when society tells us this is the time when you should start to sow your oats and live wild, and now you have the power. You're not only 16 and hormones are flowing, but you have everything at your disposal to do what you do. At that point, at 16 years of age, Josiah said, I'm going to seek God. I'm going to humble myself before the Lord. And call out to him and say, God, you've got to do something through me or I can't lead this nation. Can you imagine the pressure on this young man to to channel the course of a nation either towards God or away from God? And Josiah, it says in Scripture, sought the Lord. He had a tender and open heart He had a heart that was wanting to seek and find God. A little bit later on, we'll talk about this when we look at King Asa, but in the the writings about King Asa, it says of this, God says, the eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. God found in Josiah a heart that was fully committed to Him, and He he, he led him on a journey to discover what his heart was. God was opening up his heart to Josiah because Josiah's heart was yielded to him. Whose heart? Whose heart does your heart belong to? Is your heart open? It doesn't have to be pure. It just has to be open. God's the one that purifies. God's the one that heals. But are you in a place, no matter where you are, no matter what situation you you have in life, where you would say, God, I want my heart to be open to you. I want you to have an opportunity to look into my life, to speak into my life, and I want to commit my life fully to you. That's the only requirement that God asks of us, that we would say yes with our hearts, with our lives, so that He could do what He wants to do. God had Josiah's heart. He had one who was, who was fully committed to him. 
And so therefore, God was wanting to strongly support. And yet at the same time, hearts that are not tender, hearts that are sinful, hearts that are cold, hearts that are resistant, God can't penetrate. When we close the door, God could penetrate. But God's looking for a response from us. He's not looking to take us over. He's, he's wanting us to welcome him in. Revelations talks about that, right? Behold, I stand at the door of your heart and knock. If you will open the door, I will come in and I will eat dinner with you. I will sup with you. I will fellowship with you. But we have to open the door of our heart. Josiah had opened the door of his heart. He was given, I believe, and I, I shared this last week, we had an elders prayer time uh, to begin the year with all three sets of elders from our three local churches. And one of the elders spoke of this gift of desperateness. That God gives us a gift to be desperate for Him. And Josiah had that gift of desperateness. He knew that if he didn't have God working in his life, that destruction, calamity was going to happen to his nation. He just sensed it, and so he started worshiping God. He started seeking God. And at age 20, after he had been seeking God for four years, he came to the place of recognition that there were idols in the land. There, were, there was competition in people's hearts with the one true God. And he began to go through the land and destroy all the idols, all the places of worship that were not worshiping the one true living God. And he made it as his mandate as a leader to purge and cleanse the land of defilement. Both the land and the temple of the living God. And then it says in verse 8, in the 18th year of his reign, after he had purified the land and the temple, Josiah appointed Shaphan son of Azaliah, Messiah the governor of Jerusalem, and Joah son of Johaz, the royal historian, to repair the temple of the Lord his God. He had purified the land of idols and then in the temple, and then the temple he saw as a, as a holy place where God um, should be honored and revered. And he began to work at making the temple, restoring it to its proper place of position and honor so that God would be present. He had a holy worship of God. The, the temple had not been repaired for 250 years. The last time was with King Joash. It was in disrepair. He had brought cleansing to the land and to the temple. You know, when we see, and we talked about this last week, but when we see the temple in Scripture in the Old Testament, um, there is an illusion, there is a comparison. We are now, the Scripture says, in, New, in the New Testament as believers in Christ, we are now the temple of the living God where there was once a location, a location where God um, would reside and where sacrifices and worship took place in the Old Testament, now through Christ's death and His blood shed on the cross and His resurrection, uh, coming back to life and that life, uh, extending life to us in salvation, it says that Jesus said that when I leave, I will send My Spirit and My Spirit will live in you and you will be the abode, you will be the home, you will be the place in which I live. So all of us who are believers in Jesus, who have been, who have been saved, 
through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, have become temples. We've become the temple. Each one of us, a little temple, us together, the temple, the body, the temple of God. And He lives in us. He is worshipped by us. And so when we think about the temple being cleansed, when we think about our own lives, I think about 2 Chronicles, not 2 Chronicles, 2 Corinthians in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, when it says, And what union can there be between God's temple and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will live in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among unbelievers and separate yourselves from them, says the Lord. Don't touch their filthy things and I will welcome you. And I will be your father and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. God is calling us to a place of holiness and righteousness because we are the temple of the living God and He wants to live beautifully and powerfully and wonderfully through our lives. He's calling us to a place of partnership with Him. But when we are haughty, when we are proud, when we are idolatrous, when we are divided in our affections, when we are not fully devoted to the Lord, but we, we, we take what we want from God and we discard the rest, um, we close ourselves up from the from the the work of God in our lives. We've become enslaved even though we are not slaves to sin anymore. We give power to sin where it has no power. And God wants to set us free. Have we humbled ourselves to be cleansed in in our lives? Do we have tender hearts? Are we deeply moved by God? Or are we moral and spiritually indifferent? The second thing that Josiah did is he humbled himself before God's word. Look at verse 14. While they were bringing out the money, so now they're repairing the temple in chapter 34. They've got workers working on it, and they're getting into rooms that they haven't even opened in a long time. It's like spring cleaning in the temple. 250 years of muck is being dealt with. And while they were bringing out the money collected to the Lord's temple, Hilkiah, the priest, found the book of the law of the Lord that was written by Moses. Hilkiah said to Shaphan, the court secretary, I found the book of the law in the Lord's temple. Like, wow, can you believe that? I found the book of the law in the temple. Surprise, surprise. Shouldn't it be there? (laughs) Then Hilkiah gave the scroll to Shaphan, and Shaphan took the scroll to the king and reported, Sir, you're officials are doing everything they were assigned to do. The money that was collected at the temple of the Lord has been turned over to the supervisors and workmen. And Shaphan also told the king, I kind of almost, it's like, oh, by the way, Hilkiah the priest has given me a scroll. So so Shaphan read it to the king, not just a scroll. The book of the law. So here they are repairing the temple and they find the Word of God. Now before we, we kind of laughed about that, before we laughed about how how could they be a people of God and have a temple and lose the law. How often as temple people do we lose the book of the law in our life? 
How relevant and present is God's Word in our life? How serious, even now as you sit here and the Scripture is being opened and we're reading through the Word of God, how serious and attentive is your heart to what God might say to you this morning through the Word of God? How precious is His Word? And I think that sometimes for all of us, including your pastor, even though I have His Word in paper form, I've got it on my iPhone, I've got it on my iPad, my computer, I've got printouts, I've got cards. I've got the Word of God. It is not lost in its written form. Or I even got it on audio. I can listen to it. But how often is His Word lost in my life? It had been lost on the kingdom. And they brought it and they read it to the king. Some say that the reading of the law might have been anywhere from, depending on if it was just Deuteronomy, some scholars think it might have just been the book of Deuteronomy, where the law is described, or it could have been the whole Pentateuch. So somewhere between 2 and 12 hours, the law was read to Josiah. And we have a a good sense of what this audience of one was like when it was read. He was wrapped with attention. And when it was finished, it says in verse 19, Josiah heard what was written in the law and he tore his clothes in despair. Then he gave these orders to Hilkiah, sorry, I can't see. I've got um, a little moisture in my eyes here. And Ahikam, son of Shaphan, Akbor, son of Micaiah, Shephan, the court secretary, and Isaiah, the king's personal advisor. And he said, go to the temple and speak to the Lord for me and for all the remnant of Israel and Judah. Inquire about these words written in the scroll that has been found. For the Lord's great anger has been poured out on us because our ancestors have not obeyed the word of the Lord. We have not been doing everything this scroll says we must do. Josiah tore his clothes. He was brought to despair, and he hungered for God's response to what God was thinking about this nation. Oftentimes, the best response, and we go back to mom and dad and children, but the best response of our hearts to something when we realize, oh no, something is wrong, is run to the person who's in charge and beg for mercy. God, what's your word? I I, I didn't have any idea that this was was your command. I, I, I... I failed, I I, I didn't understand the implications, and now I get it. All of a sudden, there's revelation and I can get it. God, what is your response? I humble myself before you on behalf of me and my nation. What will you do, God? The words of God cut to his heart. He believed and responded with desperate appeal. Here is that desperate man again. And the advisors met with the prophetess, Huldah, and she gave God's reply. I'm going to bring disaster on this city and its people. All the curses written in the scroll that was read to the king of Judah will come true. 
For my people have abandoned me and offered sacrifices to pagan gods, and I am very angry with them for everything they have done. My anger will be poured out on this place, and it will not be quenched. So God gives us a little peek, and I just I, I read that passage of Scripture because I want you to know that God hates sin. He hates it. Why does He hate it? Because if you go back a few chapters and you read what these kings and these people are doing and you imagine what life was like in the context of their sinfulness, you realize that death and destruction and ugliness was all over the people. He hates it when His people are blinded and abused and destroyed by the effects of sin. He hates it. And when we wink at it and we say it's okay or let's reshape morality or reshape the way that sin is seen, God is grieved because He knows that sin is sin and the fruits of sin, He says, are death. But in this place where His anger will not be quenched ultimately, He did bring judgment on Judah. They were captured by the Babylonian Empire and exiled. He did have this response to Josiah. Verse 26, But go to the king of Judah who sent you to to seek the Lord and tell him, This is what the Lord your God of Israel says concerning the message you have just heard. You were sorry and humbled yourself before God when you heard His words against this city and its people. You humbled yourself and tore your clothing in despair and wept before me in repentance. And I have indeed heard you, says the Lord. So I will not send the promised disaster until after you have died and been buried in peace. You yourself will not see the disaster I'm going to bring on this city and its people. You were sorry and humbled yourself. You despaired and wept and repented. And therefore, I've heard you, and I will not send disaster. Does that sound like 2 Chronicles 7.14? Josiah put his heart before the Lord and appealed to the God of mercy and grace. This morning when I was praying over you, when we were gathered here together as we do every morning, we pray over our service and we ask God to speak and and to, to prepare our hearts but also your hearts in the presence of the Lord as I was praying over you. God just began to show me, and, I, and uh, uh, He just began to show me faces of people in my past, people that I've walked with, people uh, past, present, who have known the Lord, but for one reason or another, their hearts have grown hard and they've given themselves back over to a sinful lifestyle in an unbelieving posture before God. Or at least a casual posture before God. And my heart began to break. And I began to weep because I heard in my my head, in my mind, God saying, Mercy! I want to extend mercy in your place of rebellion. I want mercy. And I was just praying over different people as they they came to my mind. Mercy, God. Mercy, God. Because that's the heart of God. God does not want to unleash His unquenchable fire and bring justice and judgment and destruction to His people. He longs for His people to cry out to Him as Josiah did and humble themselves so that He can extend mercy. 
But when we resist, there is a point where judgment comes. I don't know where it is. I don't know when it comes. But it comes because sin brings death. But at any point along the way of our journey of rebellion and hardness and coldness before the Lord, at any point along the way where we live in a place of unbelief, if we will stop as Josiah did when he heard the Word of God and humble ourselves, God wants to bring mercy. Mercy to you today. Mercy to me. But by the grace of God, we are what we are. If God had not extended His scepter of mercy in our life, we would be destroyed. But God is gracious. So when we come before the Word of God, and I'd ask the worship team to come on up. When we come before the Word of God, does it like Hebrews describe? have that powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow power? Is it exposing our innermost thoughts and actions? We know that when the Word of God is spoken or read, it does. And is our awareness that verse 13 says in Hebrews that nothing in all creation is hidden from God? Everything in our life is naked and exposed before His eyes. And He is the one that we are accountable to. Keep on listening. Keep on listening because it gets good right after this verse. I know what it feels like because I am human. I know what it feels like to be walking in a place of of sin where I know that I'm rebelling towards God rebellious towards God and I'm not receiving the fruits of His blessing because of my rebellion. And I know what it feels like when His conviction comes and my inner being starts to shake because I am in that wrestling moment. All of a sudden, I'm one of my children and I'm trying to resist the reality that I have been caught. And Hebrews says, don't be fooled, you're naked and bare before me all the time. I see everything that's in your life but I'm resisting it because I want to make myself right instead of allow God to forgive me and to make me right. Read on. In Hebrews it says, you are naked and bare, but you have a great high priest, Jesus, who has entered heaven, the Son of God. So hold firmly to what you believe and what you know about Jesus. What do we know about Jesus? That He understands our weaknesses. That He faced all the same testings we do, yet He he won. He didn't sin. So He has power to defeat sin in our life. And we can come, listen to this, we can come boldly to the throne of our gracious God and receive mercy. We will find mercy grace, unmerited favor to help us when we need it most. Josiah ended that place of repentance by having the book of the law read to the whole nation so they could hear where they had been wrong. And then he led out in a public repentance before God. 
and in an acknowledgement that as far as he is a leader of that nation and his people would go, they were going to serve the living God. And there was revival in the land. Would you stand with me? Where are you today? Are you broken and humble before God? Even now, throughout this service, I fully believe that God, knowing what we were going to talk about, has begun to speak to you about areas of resistance in your life that He wants you to let go of. He's good that way. He doesn't shy away from from confrontation with you because He wants you to be delivered. So God's been speaking. He hasn't been speaking to me, so I don't know any of your sins. So don't worry about me. But God said that you're naked and bare before Him. But what you have going for you, what we have going for you, is He's not an angry, vengeful mm, God. Thank you. He is a God who is hoping and believing like mom and dad are with our children that you would see it and you would acknowledge how good He is and you would repent and humble yourself before Him so that He could forgive you and restore you. Amen? So, as we begin this series, or as we've begun this series, I want to invite you to humble yourself before the Lord. What does it look like for you to humble yourself before what God's been saying? And um, allow God to be God in your life this morning and speak His words of forgiveness, His words of hope, His words of grace. And so, I have this, this thought that there might be a number of you that would come forward for your own life, and it could be for the life of somebody else. But let's begin to posture ourselves as a church to allow God to touch our tender hearts, our hearts that He could strongly support and bring us to a place of restoration. So if your response is, God, I'm in a place where I want to humble myself before you, would you come forward and let's pray together.